Well, uh, New Year is approaching. Not sure what your plans are. Uh, but uh, if you've sat down and watched TV at all over the last uh, few days, have you noticed that pretty much every programme has been focused uh, either on looking back to the year that's gone or the year that is coming? I read there yesterday just the, the top New Year's three, top three New Year's resolutions. Top three W's for men were weight, work and women. Um, the top three W's for women were weight, work and wishing that men weren't so annoying. But uh, that was that press I didn't think was particularly helpful. Anyway, looking back as a Christian, 2018 for you, how's it been? It's been a good year as a Christian? Do you love Jesus more now than you did on January the 1st of this year? Do you long more now to honour Jesus as your Saviour and Lord as you did in January the 1st? Christian life is fundamentally a relationship, isn't it? As we trust Jesus, we enter into an eternal relationship with God, forged through Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection. It's a relationship. But imagine that you resolved last January to work hard at a particular relationship in your life, uh, you know, with someone that you know or love, maybe a colleague, a, a family member, a friend, your spouse. Imagine then you spent the last 12 months only listening to them just once a week, just for a few minutes. Oh, you might send the occasional text, uh, but not really listening to them. Not wanting to get to know them any better. How do you think that relationship, if you just invested that much, how do you think it would be after the last 12 months? I wonder, do you as a Christian do that, exactly that with God? And as a result, do you, do you begin to forget who God is? So often we start worrying, don't we? Because we forget God's sovereign wisdom uh, in and through our lives. We begin to resent our circumstances because we forget his mercy. We start coveting stuff in our lives, don't we? Wanting so, so many things because we forget God's beauty. We begin to play with sin because we forget that God is holy. We so easily forget because we don't sit and we don't listen and hear God speak to us. Which is why we need to be convinced so regularly that, that opening up the Bible every single day, letting God speak into our lives, both in its joys, in the joyous times, but also in the difficult times. Well, that is absolutely essential. I go so far as to say it's life-saving. The Bible is so significant because, yes, it's the, historic, the objective historic account of God working in and through his creation. But it also reminds us who God is and how much he loves us and what he has done in sending his son to die in our place on a cross to bear the punishment that our sin and rebellion deserves. God is utterly amazing, isn't he? But within the world that we live, it's so easy, isn't it, to forget, to put other things in his place. And God in his love has written to us, revealed himself to us, and we have that revelation in our hands. What a privilege. I hope when you open up the Bible, you go, in a sense, you, the inner monologue should be, wow. And if it's not, I hope this morning will be helpful. 
Let's briefly think about, we're going to think about two main questions. How we read the Bible and why we read the Bible. Firstly, how we read the Bible. I'm just going to go back to kind of the basics, absolute basics, because for some that might be helpful. For others, you you know this anyway. But absolute basics are this. Bible's divided into two sections. If you take hold of your Bibles and look to the the front, you'll find a, a contents page on page, well, it's in Roman numerals, but it's there, contents page. And you'll see it's divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's Old Covenant, New Covenant, essentially. Old Testament, written in Hebrew, majority of it. Small portion of it, part of Daniel, is written in Aramaic. New Testament was written in Greek. Now, before you all start sweating, thankfully, uh, scholars have done the work and uh, we don't have to be able to read those ancient languages. The Bible is now translated in over 2,400 languages. That's covering 98% of the world's population. The Bible is still the best-selling book in the world ever and still every week hits the top uh, to number one. But how do we read it? Let's recognise a few things to help us know how we read it. Firstly, and most importantly, we need to recognise it is God's word. It is extraordinary, but what we have in front of us is the very word of God. And the beauty of the Christian faith is that we're not left alone to find God ourselves. Rather, God firstly speaks into his creation and that word of God sustains, creates and sustains. But more importantly, it reveals God to us. We are the pinnacle of his creation and we can know him. Turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I wonder if someone could shout out the page when you first find it. 552, page 552 of your Bibles. Why don't you have a look down there and you'll see... Uh, Some pretty well-known verses, I hope, to many of you. In Psalm 19, we see in the first few verses, let me read uh, verse 1 and 2 to you, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they they reveal knowledge. What we see in Psalm 19, that God speaks and he creates and That creation speaks to us. It reveals something of God to us. But the word God used there in verse 1 of Psalm 19 is the most generic. Essentially, the the Hebrew word means faceless. It's just simply L in in the Hebrew. So we can know something of God as we look at lovely sunset. But that isn't everything. It's interesting as you then go down the ver- go down to verse 7 of Psalm 19. You suddenly read that the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. It's interesting that when you, when you get down to verse 7, the following part of Psalm 19 shows that the law, the precepts, the commandments, namely the word of God in front of us here, reveals to us the Lord. Notice God isn't used there. It is Lord in capitals. And the Lord in capitals is is Yahweh, God's covenant name. That is, you can know something about God as you look at the sun and say, wow, isn't something big out there? But as you open up God's word, you can come into a covenant relationship with the Lord. God speaks through his word. So that we can know him. 
so that we can be in relationship with him. So God reveals himself through his word. Then, as the Bible goes on, we see God personally reveals himself even more clearly through the divine word, namely in and through his son, the Lord Jesus, who was called the word of God because he was God and he spoke to reveal God to the world. But the interesting thing is, Jesus didn't author, in a sense, directly any of the books we find in the Bible. So how can the, the, this be the word of God, given that the writers of every one of these books are human? Well, the Bible obviously shows us uh, how those So, If you turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16... You want to got the page number? 1196. 1196, thank you. We'll look at this later as well. But it says that all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. As what we see is that all 66 books of the whole of scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, are God breathed. And useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Well, how can this be possible? Well, the word of God before Jesus came to this earth and was revealed directly to God's people. Either uh, as God spoke directly, as he did to Abraham, for example, Moses, and, and many others. Or as the word of God or commands of God were revealed through prophets, inspired by God, who were messengers to God's people. Now, Although the, all the authors of the Old Testament were human, we know from the Bible that each of the writers were inspired by God to write what they did. Now, each writer writes in their own style. You can tell that as you look at the books with their nuances and their language. But it was God-breathed. That it, was, it was God-inspired. Every word that, as you open up the Bible, is God's words that he's inspired writers to write. There's no mistakes, if you like. The last book of the Old Testament was written in 435 BC and Jesus himself authenticates as he looks back a body of work, scripture as he calls it, uh, the writings and, and the prophets and everything. He looks back and Jesus authorises everything that has come before him as he teaches it in the synagogues. There's a group of scrolls and they were compiled after uh, Jesus' authentication of them. And the earliest list we have of those uh, Old Testament kind of collections was by a guy called Melito, uh, the Bishop of Sardis, and that was in AD 170. Now, the New Testament, again, was written by human authors, and the same kind of authentication of them applies as it does to the Old Testament. The books were authored, yes, by humans, but they are God-breathed. Now, the criteria for inclusion of a book in the New Testament was had to follow two rules. Uh, first was that they must be apostolic. That is, it must be uh, written by apostles, commissioned and empowered by Jesus. Do you see how Jesus is so important to what's in the Bible? He authenticates the Old Testament and he authenticates the New by commissioning apostles to write and empowering them to write. In Acts 1.8, for example, Jesus, before returning to heaven, calls the disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That is to record and distribute what he's done and is doing through the church at that time. 
Second criteria to New Testament book conclusion was into the Bible was that they must not contradict the rest of Scripture. Hence why a couple of Gospels that were written um, were not included because they didn't meet either criteria. They weren't written by apostles and they contradicted other parts of Scripture. So God has spoken. His words have been recorded in history through teachers, kings, prophets, and lastly through Jesus' disciples who became apostles, meaning God's messengers. But the critical thing about God's word, the Bible, is that we need no more. God has revealed everything. Everything that we need for life today and for salvation with him for eternity can be found in the pages of God's word. The writer to Hebrews, remember chapter 1 verse 1, we'll be looking at it in small groups, says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and at various ways. But in these last days, now, before Jesus returns, God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom the universe was made. That is, he's saying, God has spoken through Jesus, through scripture, and he has spoken fully and finally. This is all we need to know about God and to be in relationship with God. How do we know this to be true? Well, interestingly, it's a, it's a strange argument, but because the Bible tells us it's true. That sounds like a weak argument. See, but the Bible, unlike any other literature, is self-attesting. That is, the words of the Bible cannot be proved to be God's words by appealing to a higher authority. Because if you do that, do you see what you do? You render God, the Bible, to be a lower authority. You say that God is lower than something else. For example, if you appeal to human reason or logic or scientific truth to show that the Bible is truly God's word, then you assume that science or logic or human reason are to a higher authority than God himself. And what year of science do you appeal to? Science is always changing, isn't it? It's developing. It's, it's realising it needs to kind of... Uh, work out a theory and kind of develop on that. But we know that the Bible is true. We know it is God's word because it tells us it is so. And evidentially is the most supreme piece of ancient history. Evidence beyond any other ancient histories. But supremely we know it is the word of God because it says it is. Read it. And see how much it makes sense. And let God work in and through it. So firstly, recognise it as the word of God. Secondly, much more briefly, don't worry. It's a collection, recognise it's a collection of books. It's a collection of 66 books. 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books written about Jesus and his early church. Like with books that we read, we know that you have to recognise there is a difference between the types of books you read. There's a profound difference, isn't it, between a textbook that you might read and a fictional novel like Harry Potter or something else that you may have got for Christmas. And we recognise that, don't we, as we open up a book, a cookbook versus, you know, a magazine or something. They're different. And when you read the Bible, you must open your eyes and try to understand what you are reading. Is it poetry? 
Is it narrative? Is it history? Is it apocalyptic literature? And all those different genres have a, a, a different ways of writing, uh, using expressions, use of language. So to read a piece of literature without this understanding is, is naive, isn't it? And it exposes the reader as, well, quite silly really at times, and, and maybe also biased. Now, the question is, why do scientists, for example, read the account of Genesis and mock it? Not all do. Many, many scientists, many eminent scientists, as a few here, um, you know, don't do it in that way, but some would. You know, if the creation account were written in 21st century scientific language, it would have been unreadable for the last 2,000 years. No one would have understood any of it. The Bible account of creation is, we must understand, it is Hebrew poetry. First 11 chapters of the Bible are. And it's formulated in what we call these beautiful chiastic structures. Don't worry about what that is. They're kind of these beautiful ways of putting kind of poetry together. And it's not trying to answer the scientific question. How was the earth created? It's rather, it's saying, it's showing yeah, who created. That is God. And singing his praises. So how do we read the Bible? Firstly, recognise it is the word of God. Secondly, recognise it's a collection of books. And thirdly, recognise it's progressive revelation. See, what we know of God in verse 1 of the Bible is nothing in comparison to what we know of God in verse, the last verse of the Bible. God throughout history reveals himself to his people and works for his people to save his people from their rebellion of him. So what we find is that the Old Testament points us to Jesus, to his coming and our need of him. And therefore what we read in the Old Testament, for example, of Moses being called to deliver God's people, those stories of the Old Testament, those are acts of God working with his people to save them in history. But they're also pictures, little glimmers of who Jesus is and what he is going to do for his people. Moses is, if you like, a foretaste of Jesus. Because like Moses, Jesus delivers his people from sin and rebellion. The Old Testament, you see, provides big and tangible pictures of what Jesus achieves for us on the cross. God is progressively working through history to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, who will change history forever. Now we know that Jesus died on a cross he did so in our place, so that if we believe and trust in his death for our sin, then we too can be forgiven. It's a swap, isn't it? That's how sometimes we might describe it for children. Uh, Jesus takes the punishment we deserve and we get his righteousness counted as us, so we can stand before God perfectly in eternity. It's a perfect, a perfect life swap for our sinful life. What's that a picture of? Well, he is like, in Exodus, he's our Passover lamb. Where the story in Moses, that the lamb is, is if you like, punished, is, his life is taken, the sin is placed on the lamb, such that death passes over. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The Old Testament points us to and illustrates that sacrifice on the cross. I was reading the other day of the writer Dostoevsky when when he came out of prison after 10 years, he said this of Jesus, he'd been given a Bible. 
I believe there is no one lovelier, he said, no one deeper, more sympathetic than him. Not only is there no one else like him, but there never could be anyone else like him. And the Bible reveals Jesus to us. The whole of the Old Testament points to him and our need of him. And the New Testament wonderfully reveals him to us, proclaims him and the forgiveness of sin that he offers so that we can be united to him for eternity. So how we read the Bible, recognise it's God's word, recognise it's a collection of books and recognise it's a progressive revelation. So lastly, why do we need to read the Bible? See, how and why are actually very closely linked. How you read it, it it is to recognise its worth. And why you read it is to benefit from that worth. So the answer could be the same, but let's turn to that verse we previously looked at in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Why don't you just cast your eyes down to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. They'll come up on the screen as well. Two good reasons why we should read the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking and training in righteousness. Napoleon Bonaparte once said this of Jesus, I know a man... And I tell you that Jesus is not only a man, between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible hint of comparison. Alexander, Charmaine, Caesar and I have all founded empires, but we, with what did we, did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. And Jesus Christ founded his empire on love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. You see, the... It is that Jesus Christ whom we find on the pages of the Bible. But why we read about him is not simply because of his perfect character of love. It's not simply because peer pressure is millions around the world today will be reading of him. Rather, why we read the Bible is because it is God-breathed. I was listening to my favourite podcast, driving down uh, Christmas travels yesterday from the north and uh, there was Freddie Flintoff and Robbie Savage speaking here. All the nonsense that they do on the podcast. And uh, they were talking about Christmas. It was very interesting, you know, they both went to church, both enjoyed all of that kind of stuff. And then the other guy, the ping pong guy, as he's called, uh, you know, started talking about, you know, oh, do you believe in that then? And they would go, well, we believe in a higher power, they both said, above and over creation, but... Both dismiss Jesus, taking the line that none of us can know God really, properly. Honestly, it was so infuriating. I wanted to smash windows. It was like, come on, just open up your Bibles. There's Jesus. God has made himself known clearly, perfectly, fully in the world. Empowered and authorised by Jesus and the Spirit. He has breathed and authored every word. If God were to sit next to you now and start speaking to you, would you so nonchalantly sort of put your hand up and sort of speak to the hand or whatever? No. Well, that's what you're doing every time you close the Bible in the morning. What we have in front of us is extraordinary. And beyond any other book or anything. I don't know if you read Harry Potter. The Goblet of Fire, if you've read it, uh, do you remember the, what the goblet provided? 
It offered two things. The ability to perform alchemy, you know, to change something into kind of gold and everything. Uh, but it also offered the elixir of life. It's eternal life. That book was ranked number one in the book charts when it came out for many, many uh, months. It was also the greatest book that the greatest proportion of people started but never completed that year. Even though it spoke of eternal riches and eternal life, people didn't want to finish it. Well, the book that we have in our hands, well, it's captivated people for centuries. The author is not a billionaire like uh, J.K. Rowling, but uh, riches are not promised in this book for today. But it does offer the promise and security of eternal life and riches beyond measure in your life to come. So why do people read this book again and again? Well, it makes sense and it holds together. It's evidence beyond all other ancient histories. It's authoritative. It's life-saving. It gives purpose to life, but all because it is God-breathed. These are God's words. And surely we'd be fools to not listen. Why, lastly, because... Uh, It's useful for teaching. God has chosen to reveal himself through his word, the Bible. He could have spoken to us through clouds and and pictures or through people dancing or playing music or through anything. But that wouldn't be as clear as if he had revealed himself through his word. And he reveals himself fully and finally and objectively through the words in the Bible. You see... When we read the Bible, we can see God, and with careful study, there's no need for confusion. Yes, we need to have humility, and not be arrogant and say this. Hence why Paul, the writer of his letter to Timothy, says, Scripture is useful for teaching. If you want to know God, if you want to accept Jesus' offer of himself for you in your place on the cross, then you go here. To understand it more. To see the riches of who Jesus is and what he's done. And you can also go here to see how you can respond to that truth. For example, if you open up Mark chapter 1. If you want to get into God's kingdom, Jesus proclaims that and he shows us the way. We need to turn, that is repent, and we need to believe, put our faith in him. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The Bible teaches this. If we open up, only open up our ears to hear God speak. And if you want to do that, if you want to know how to live for him, then you must turn to the Bible. Because as you trust Jesus with your life and death, you enter into relationship with God. And like in any other relationship, you will want to know how to please that person in that relationship. And the Bible will teach us that. It will show us, it will be a light to our path, as we saw at the beginning from Psalm 119. At times that will be difficult. The Bible, God will speak and it will rebuke you. It will teach you and it will train you to show you how to please God, to offer your life in response to all that he's done. It's exactly what you do in any other relationship. It is so, as verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good And pleasing work, essentially, for God. But ultimately, what you have before you is the key to eternal life. God is speaking. 
And we need to choose to respond, repent and believe to enter God's kingdom for eternity. So read this book. Let God speak to you and change your life and eternity. Why don't you turn to the person beside you? Uh, maybe there's some questions you want to ask.